Hello everyone, welcome to Intimate Animation, brought to you by the online animation magazine Squiggly.com. This series covers animation that takes on adult themes of love, relationships, and sex. So steal yourself as there's some frank discussion ahead. Hi everyone, welcome back to Intimate Animation, presented by me, Ben Mitchell, and Laura Beth Cowley. Hello, Laura. Hello, Ben. How have you been? Okay. It's been a weird couple of weeks, hasn't it? Well, we got, uh, yeah, we had our first sort of time off um, <laughs> last month, and then uh, got a notification from the uh, the NHS app, like, no, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> Which to be, I mean, you know, that's that's how it was happening to everyone. I think a lot of people. But, it was an uh, odd kind of psychological thing. It really, I, I kind of almost forgot that you could be put into isolation because it hadn't happened in so long. And really, throughout all of this, we've kind of acted as if we're in a vulnerable camp anyway, because we've been trying to make sure that we're as clear as possible, so that we could see like elderly relatives and stuff, or sick relatives or whatever. So we were able to move our actual holiday back a week and work was very understanding about that. So it all worked out. We got our holiday. But as far as like what's been happening since the last episode of this, uh, well, I guess we've been kind of involved in uh, festival prep uh, in some respects and, um, you know, doing bits of our own work. I have some stuff actually that we've been doing at Shy Guys that uh, I don't think is out in public yet. But it would probably be a fit for this podcast once it's sort of out there. It is It is in the very literal sense, intimate animation. There's a little tease for a future episode. <laughs> Elsewise, I mean, we didn't really have a whole lot of activity available to us. We played a lot of Nintendo and we binged some shows. One of which I suppose we could lead off with, being that it's come up quite a bit on this podcast before. But as of uh, about a month and a half ago, Tucker and Bertie resumed its uh, much-anticipated return for season two on Adult Swim, no longer on Netflix. It's a weird thing, because that's not normally how it goes. Like, shows that get cancelled normally end up on Netflix and then get, like, Netflix sexied up. Like, that's what Netflix does to shows. I, I think there's been a real hit-and-miss track record with that. The most notorious one would be, I think, the first instance of that, which was Arrested Development, which was so missed and when it came back as a netflix show and it was this kind of patchwork thing like it didn't quite work as a show to the point where the guy i think actually ended up going back and tried to re-edit it so it was more like the old show because he had tried to do something a lot more ambitious i think with the timeline of it anyway ambition isn't something you want to sort of introduce four seasons in Mm. I was talking to a friend of mine recently and we would, I've not seen Last Kingdom, um, but it was a show I believe that was on the BBC and then got put on Netflix, like got bought out by Netflix. And then it just suddenly there was just a lot more nudity and boobs and stuff because I think they were trying to work on that whole um, Game of Thrones kind of thing. You can often tell there's a kind of identifiable shift in production value. There was another show you were watching recently... I think it was on Channel 4, called Feel Good. Oh, yeah, yeah. And that then, I think... Got taken up by Netflix yeah. for the second season. I was watching that show, uh, Feel Good, kind of passively. It didn't feel like there was much of a change in tone between it being on Channel 4 and being on Netflix. No. 
Sometimes I think it's a much more kind of easy transition. You wouldn't necessarily know. I think it's uh, probably easier when it's literally been one series and then another series because there hasn't, like we, what you were saying with Arrested Development, that it isn't such a big... There's a big gap, time-wise, yeah. yeah. Um, but similarly with Tuca and Birdie, I haven't seen... That hasn't changed from not being on netflix anymore it feels like it's it's the exact same team and i think if anything the thing that's changed is that the just the show in general has just matured a bit because i remember that a lot of the criticism for tuga and birdie in the first season was that it was just very shrill and very loud and kind of a bit much and i don't know whether that was uh just the show finding its feet or whether that had anything to do with netflix in terms of like more energy more impact yeah, I think that, like, the opening credits of Tuka and Bertie, it really is like a filtration system. Because <laughs> if you could make it through those I credits... it's shortened now as well. I think, that's I, I think it's not... It, it seems to me not as long. But even still, it's sort of like an assault on the senses. Yeah. And there were definitely elements within episodes in the first season that were similarly kind of like bombardments of dialogue and colour and frantic activity. The other thing I've noticed, I haven't seen anything so far where, like, you know how, like, in the first season, if something happened outside of the mind of the characters, it would go into a completely different art style for a while? Mm. I haven't seen any of that happening. So I think it is just that first season, like, throwing everything on the wall because God knows if we're even going to get a second season, so let's just try everything and see what works. And now it's going to a second season that's sort of matured and it's a little bit calmer, but it's sort of tapping more into each of the characters in a slightly more deep way. Like, this this season so far has been a lot more Tuka-centric, I think, than Bertie-centric. Yeah, to sort of recap, the, the premise is basically it's best friends navigating early adulthood. Although I think they're in their 30s at this point, something like that. Yeah, something like that. Um, perhaps, you know, they haven't quite... They've got slight arrested development due to past traumas, and they kind of, what's the word, um codependent so one of them is like the sort of mess who was an alcoholic who sort of at the beginning of the first season has sort of cleaned up her act it's sort of seen as being the messy one the one that the other one needs to look after but actually as the show goes on you notice that it's actually kind of a two-way street yeah i think what this season has been kind of more directly exploring is the uncertainty of relationships as they're just starting out and I think dating is going to be kind of a recurring theme in this episode of the podcast, and it sort of ties in a bit with that. I should mention, actually, in England, the second season I don't think is on all four yet, and I would assume that's where it's going to go, because all four has all of the Adult Swim stuff. But we do have the first episode of the second season on the Adult Swim YouTube, which is viewable internationally. So it's not the ideal place to kind of get into a series if you don't have Netflix the first episode of the second season, you might have more questions at the end of it. Mm. But if you have Netflix and wanted to know what happened next, yeah, we've got the first episode of season two viewable in the UK now. Hopefully it will be in England soon in full, so we'll go into it perhaps a bit more then. It does seem that the focus of the second season is more about Tuka, the more sort of freewheeling character, kind of trying to set her sights on some kind of real relationship. And it does kind of suggest there are issues that stem from the codependency that you mentioned. And sometimes being in a friendship like that, you feel very duty-bound to put your own social life on hold. So I do think it's it's putting across some pretty interesting relationship themes. But it is also still very funny. 
Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, until we actually have a full second season of that uh, here in the UK. Uh, what else has been going on TV-wise? Well, actually last month, or a couple of weeks ago, there was a thing on E4, a series that's being, I guess, trialed by the folks at Blink Inc. Blink Inc. we feature quite regularly on Squiggly. They have a great roster of really interesting artists. And um, this was a show that kind of slipped uh, under my radar a bit until I was sort of actively researching stuff that we could talk about this mm-hmm. episode. But it has been written up. Like I say, it's, it's pretty recent. It's only gone up in the last couple of weeks or so. Um, and it's available on the E4 YouTube channel. I'm not sure if they, they've showed it on TV yet or if they will. But it's called Blind Love on First Date Island, which... Um, I can't quite figure out what it is, but there's something grammatically really bad about that that doesn't... It's like um, Don't Be a Menace. Well, what the fuck was that? All those like parody films yeah, in the 90s where they were just like, these are all the films we're going to reference. Yeah, because they're obviously referencing Blind Date, Love Island, First Dates. So yeah, it's just a sort of amalgam of uh, various shows oriented around dating mainly i guess first dates yeah it doesn't really have a love island vibe as a very first dates vibe and a very like naked attraction logic well yeah the sort of inverse naked attraction logic of it's it's pre it's recorded phone calls people having phone dates like first you know conversations with each other to break the ice those phone calls are then animated and the logic i guess being you know people who aren't necessarily that uh you know photogenic might come off very very well over the phone the visualization is sort of odd i guess maybe they went with the word island and decided to make it an island in space the space element of it that it's set in space and that they're kind of like pseudo alien-y type people does strike me as a little arbitrary Here's a press release I found for it that, to me, is a bit telling. Three initial five-minute episodes will be published on E4's YouTube channel and have been created by advertising creatives turned comedy writers. Now, my impulse is to lift up new ideas, especially if it comes to something episodic, because we have such a lamentable track record in the UK for... Adult. Adult animation. Mm. It's a pretty small list i could count them all all the good ones on one hand and have some fingers to spare we got bob and margaret so i have four fingers to spare (laughs) what's been another one there has to be i kind of like stressed eric not a lot of people did but i mean i was quite young but i thought it was sort of funny um in a pre-south park wreck the runt I'd give Rex the run. Well, I mean, again, again, if you watch it now, I think we watched some of it a few years ago. And I like Rex the run. It didn't strike me as sort of adult at the time, or it's not really adult, but it's not really like angry kid teen. There has to be another one other than Bob and Margaret. Come on, Ben. Pond life. Yeah, no pond life. So two. I'm just trying to think of something in the last twenty five years. <laughs> That's where I fall down. We don't really do it. We we do more kid stuff. What I will praise the people, the developers of this show for is that they're not trying to do the sitcom format, the Family Guy format. That this was well, no, the thing that they're, cl- they're trying to do a dating show. It would be weird if they were trying to shoehorn it into a Family Guy situation. With Family Guy and and the sort of Seth MacFarlane brand that so many people kind of imitate, a lot of it's kind of predicated on 
the sort of isolated vignette comedy bits of characters to just having like a two-way dialogue babble. And that element, I think, would translate to a dating show format. There was a Seth MacFarlane like YouTube show he did that was basically Family Guy, but just with a bunch of different characters. And they were all like 30 seconds to a couple of minutes each. And they were usually just two characters just sort of talking at each other in that very overly wordy way he writes comedy. Very script heavy. Script heavy, very kind of like repeating the point over and over again. Or like the joke is that, you know, oh, they're having a really banal conversation about something they're seeing on the news, but they're gophers. You know, that level of... The thing I found quite weird about this is, A, I didn't, I hadn't seen anything about it, so when you showed it to me, I thought it was going to be a film. I thought it was going to be like a standalone thing that they'd done. B, I thought it was going to be like a mock version, and that everything about it sort of makes it seem like it's poking fun at all of those date things, like, yeah. in terms of its setup. And then you get into it and you're like, oh no, this is just a genuine dating show but just animated, which in theory I don't have any problem with at all. The thing that's kind of odd about it, and it's the kind of the same with all dating shows, is that you can never quite get away as an audience member from thinking, is it all scripted? Is it genuine conversations? But also, you even if it is genuine conversations, you're very aware that they know they're going to be on TV, so how they're speaking and the way they're interacting with each other isn't remotely how they would actually talk to each other or speak to each other. Really? And I think this show is kind of, its message is a little confused. Like, we watched the three episodes, and they all end in that sort of first date's way of, like, the little summary at the end of, like, what do they do next? Oh, they they planned another date. But the first one of those was kind of glib, and that, you know, the the thing ends on a slightly awkward note, and they're probably not going to meet up. And then they had the sort of glib ending of, they actually did decide to meet up. Just kidding. Obviously, not. they didn't. <laughs> it's like, it's oh, like okay. Well, I think the intention of actually getting people together isn't there in the it's way it is. It's an advice. Yeah. It's like a storytelling advice. But I think as a show, as an animated show, as a pitch, what they could have done with the show is made more of a statement about all of those shows, which is what it's kind of doing, but in a kind of... I think in their head they're doing it in an honest way, but I think they could have done it in a more meaningful way if they'd made sure. it fictionalised. And I'm a little hazy on the degree to which it is fictionalised. It is cited in this press release as the writing debut of the three comedy writers. Yeah, so actually it could all be fictitious. Yeah, it does say at the beginning that they're real conversations, but, you know, every episode of Fargo says this is a true story, so yeah. is it is it real? Is but it's it, a bit like... like Does we were, that matter? Yeah, and it's a bit like what we were saying with Creature Comforts, where that's what they could have done with this. If that is what they were trying to do, it, isn't, it hasn't come across. No, I, I agree. I think the positive elements of it would definitely be that there's a sort of focus on intersectionality. Which I think is good. I think that we're in a kind of phase of incorporating that into shows and stuff where it sometimes comes across as a little inorganic. But the problem is we can't not have it be like that because the world at large is still kind of acclimating to... Yeah, we're getting used to it. It's like um, postmodernism. You have to go through it to then come out of it the other end for it to be then organic and not being predetermined. 
Yeah, I'm sure decades to come we'll look back at the sort of faltering steps into, yeah. you know... Um, we'll be like, oh, God. <laughs> like, what are the <laughs> what nice... Well, I wonder sometimes, because you think of, like, the stuff that's really problematic from, like, the 1930s, or wartime-era animation and stuff, and how, you know, certain cultures are represented, and you watch, like, oh, Jesus But in Christ. their logic, you're like, well, at least we're including them. <laughs> well, no, it was. They, were, they yeah. were real strides toward inclusivity in the minds of the, you know, benevolent <laughs> white people well, like, um, at the helm. When you look at things like George Powell, and there's the whole jasper cartoons they were hailed as being i don't think jasper so much but he did another short film about an african-american folk story and that was like written about in magazines of that community as being like wow finally something that's telling our stories but it also is still kind of problematic yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah it's all context i guess the only other <laughs> thing i would sort of say about this particular show that i when I was sort of saying I'd come back to is about the design and I get what they were trying to do in terms of that if especially if they're citing adventure or anyone sort of exciting adventure time maybe that was a reviewer uh, rather than them themselves but they're trying to create this kind of collaged almost where like different characters have slightly different like it's all 2D but I think in their head they're like oh this person looks like this and they have a completely different line weight so it's not like the whole world is one style like with adventure time nor does it fully separate it like say gumball i imagine it was probably a low budget thing the character rigs are really sort of rudimentary and you know there isn't a lot of call for hugely expressive character animation but there are these sort of cutaway gags and things like that i was mentioning before we started recording put me a little in mind of the old ricky gervais cartoon that would just take podcast anecdotes and visualize them through these cutaway jokes and like oh well, let's take what's being described and put the the funny cartoon spin on it and you know the degree to which that succeeds in this kind of goes up and down and then i think you really sort of see more limitations in terms of the character's range of movement there um, which isn't a problem like it's it's clearly limited animation like you said maybe there was like a budgetary or a time thing and that's not a problem at all but then you really need to work with that and I think some of the designs do. So that's out now, whether or not it will actually um, be developed further into a show. I think, like, with all things, there's a potential there. I think it just sort of needs to work out its identity a bit more. It might be a bit like what we were saying with Tuco and Birdie. It might just be a little bit much straight off the bat, because Tuco and Birdie was a bit like that. Like, the first time I watched the first couple of episodes of that, I didn't like it, and now I really love that show. So it might be that, because it is only three episodes, and three episodes is not... only five minutes each. So. Yeah, and three episodes and five minutes of anything it's not a huge amount to judge anything on so that's something that we might be seeing more of down the line and i think that show sort of brings us on to the the short film i showed you in the week that i came across because i i follow the director on instagram adina grubb who is um, a model maker i think based in london who's made a bunch of puppets and stuff for various short films and productions um and she has quite a good following on instagram but she recently released a short film that she's been making for the last two years apparently called uh dating is shit and it's sort of a combo of 2d uh rotoscoping animation in real life sets sort of set on a desk a bit like morph in terms of like it's like characters but they exist on an animator's desk 
So I don't know whether it's meant to be a sort of representing a, her own personal journey. Yeah, it could just be a sort of meta yes. animation. Yeah, yeah. I think this one is an interesting one as far as exploring the um, different dimensions of dating and modern dating. And uh, what you were sort of talking about before about how it's a, a not very organic way of doing it, a, a way of meeting people, a way of getting to know people. And I think I'm of the generation, old fuck that I am, where internet dating, you know, at, at the dawn of it, there was a stigma attached to it. Internet dating was the thing you did when you didn't have your shit together. Well, really, we got together just as this was sort of coming about. Like, really, my only memory of dating apps before I met you was just when, like, things like uh, Grindr were sort of more popular than anything else. Tinder was obviously existed, but it was more for, like, very quick hookup, kind right. of. It was more that-driven rather than any kind of... And there was things like Plenty of Fish and stuff, and but it's not something I ever got to, because I think I would have been too anxious. It was more, I think, synonymous with, with like, the sort of newspaper Lonely Hearts column and the image of that conjures of, you know, people in grey, dismal bedsets, you know. Just... It wasn't quite as commonplace. Now, now, like, anyone who is single, I think, who is actively trying not to be, is on all of them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, now yeah, it's now that it's it's the social norm. So I don't know. Maybe it's like the people who like. Oh, you met at a party. What the fuck Weird. is wrong with you? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, it's also like I mean, I think I was of the generation that if you met someone at a thing, you then went home and you looked up every social media profile, so you knew everything about <laughs> them before you met them again. Yeah. I mean, a friend of mine was talking about like they've just started dating. I mean, it's sort of like they had been in a long term relationship for a long time, years, and. You know, they're young, and they've just started dating, and they're excited about it. And it's like, wow, that is alien to me. (laughs) (laughs) I think you and me had a very similar attitude towards dating, which is, this is fucking horrible. How can we get to the next stage sooner? (laughs) Yeah, let's, like, you know, let's let's get used to each other, you know, as quickly as possible, so we're not, like, stammering around each other. I think that's why we had, like, a courtship period of about a date. Yeah, we cut to the meat of the issue pretty quickly. I think we were, like officially together for whatever that is referred to now within three dates of meeting each other let's say so yeah something like that i'm not even sure if we made it to three we talked a lot before that so it wasn't like we didn't know each other it's not like we rushed into things and we didn't like obviously get engaged or married for like three years but I i think also with this person they're excited because it's like finally something social to do now that we can meet up with people yeah I think some people really love it and they really get excited and they really like their whole, you know, getting dressed up and going and, oh, will it be good? Will he be nice? Whatever. No. Would rather go out with a friend and know I'm going to have a good time than any of the kind of worry, which is a bit what this film is a bit about. It's about a girl who clearly does want to get something legitimately going, but everyone she goes on, it's, it's sort of like structured around her going on multiple dates with multiple people and we sort of see these little snapshots of her going on these multiple dates with these multiple guys all of which have are either like like really arrogant or they're really messy or whatever and then we also get these little snapshots of her seeing her friends who are whose lives or dating lives are far more complete like they're getting engaged or they're having children and it's her like as as the film goes on it's her getting like more and more sad about 
not finding the person that she wants to be with and having those things that she's looking for in the kind of traditional sense of what a dating app should be and then meeting someone who does want the same thing but missing it because she's got so bringing a certain energy to it at that point yeah she's got so downtrodden by the whole process that she's now not even able to see the potential in people because she just now assumes that they're gonna not be good or not treat her well or not be right something that's also a kind of indicator about the changing landscape of things is um i found this film on vimeo and it's clocked up about 20 views at the time of recording uh you saw it on instagram and it's like nearing ten thousand. like i um, said she has a huge instagram following as does one of the animators she works with as well like she's really during lockdown really created this microcosm because i think she also does i can't remember which one it is like some sort of skillshare thing where she shows people how to make puppets and she has a really nice craft centric approach to puppet making that isn't impenetrable like it's not so high for looting that you like there's no way i can achieve that but it's also professional enough that it she clearly obviously gets work and stuff and she makes props and she kind of was like the ideal model maker in the sense of like she's exactly what you think model making will be like and she just enjoys making little things and she's really really what people who are good at instagram within our field are are people that are really good at making sure they always have a setup for making ofs and showing process and stuff and she does a lot of that and this film is weirdly kind of like sort of demonstrates that as well because it has that real combo of like like you say it's kind of meta like we're seeing her workstation at the same time as we're seeing the film it's kind of a sobering little lesson in the changing face of media consumption the sort of low views on vimeo versus the high views on instagram and a very high like count on instagram as well sort of goes to show that there are you know there's more than one uh, avenue around and uh, from the writing on the wall it's looking like Vimeo isn't going to be quite what it was as far as a platform for filmmakers as such. But that's something I think we'll we'll get to like when we get to it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, an interesting film. I think it makes some interesting points about dating in a way that perhaps the, the other show didn't quite. Yeah. So yeah, sort of thematically a uh, similar project there. A couple of other British things we could maybe discuss. So other stuff that has crossed my radar... On the site recently, we had Anna Ginsberg as one of our guests for our Animation One-to-Ones series. Anna Ginsberg, who has been on this podcast before. Since that film that she was on talking about private parts, she's done a bunch more uh, really interesting stuff. So if you like this kind of uh, theme, check out that interview with Anna. Catch up on what she's been up to since then. But I was having a look at the Strange Beast website. That's the studio that she's sort of mainly involved with. I also saw this project, which has gone up quite recently. It's called A Song for Pubes by Sasha Beely. So this was a commercial, I guess, for Venus, uh, all 2D animation. I'll just read the description. Sasha Beely directs the musical sensation we've all been waiting for. An all-singing, all-dancing spectacular from the perspective of a pubic hair. There's a slight incongruity with this one in that it's about shaving, I guess, or it's sort of to promote shaving, but the sort of message is, don't be ashamed of your pubes. Except do shave them off. Yeah. Do Do use our product. Embrace your pubes, buy uh, razors. I think it's in the same denotion of like a lot of like female-centric 
hygiene products are having to address the issues associated with their products in terms of women of all types. You can do whatever you want, but if you want to get rid of them, if you choose to get rid of them, use Venus. Well, it says here in the description, creative of Venus, the spots founded in the fact that half of US women agree it feels more accurate to use anatomical terms like pubic, but only 18% are actually using them. Women want to reclaim the narrative around the language and description of their bodies. Brought to life in Sasha's signature style, the pube finally gets its moment of glory. So I guess it's an American commercial. I would be very surprised if this appeared on American TV. It'll be after the watershed, probably. Yeah, maybe. I don't, I'm not sure if they have it's a... It's odd, though, because it's very... Her style is quite childlike. This looks like Oto Pubic Hair, the children's book. Yeah, very kid's book illustration. I find the whole notion of pubic hair quite weird. Like, the idea that it's like a... When we were talking about when people get quite adamant about either shaving or not shaving, but nowadays it tends to be more on the camp of not shaving or or keeping your hair. But it's a bit like, you remember that episode of uh, Naked Attraction with the woman who's like had all of her pubic hair, legs, armpits, everything? It was almost like a, a litmus test for men that she was willing to spend time with. Like, if they have a problem with my pubic hair, then they have a problem with me and I'm not going to see them because my body, my rules. Yeah. But then she got with a guy and then, like, the next time he's always like, so he didn't like my pubic hair, so I shaved it off. And I was like, hmm, okay. It is interesting the degree to which, yeah, the shots are kind of cooled. But I mean, the attitude I generally get is, like, most people don't care. Like, they just, it's not something that lives in their head. So, if the person they're with yeah. has a preference, fine. Yeah, yeah. It's become kind of the social norm now. So, younger people find the idea of, like, not shaving or waxing or lasering or whatever. Like, it's very old school. But I have a friend who, like, you know, younger person who, like, she went through this kind of thing of, like, being really sort of pro-body hair and stuff and, like, made this big point of growing out her armpits and, you know, fine, <laughs> do what you want. And then it sort of somehow pubic hair came up and she was sort of taken aback by that. Was like, well, obviously I'm not going to grow my pubes. Like, <laughs> like, And there is this lingering kind of misinformation that having hair down there isn't hygienic it's kind of interesting if you track the history of pubic hair because there was also that thing like it's like the idea of a merkin and the whole point of a merkin was prostitutes or women who worked in the sex industry shaved the hair off so that they wouldn't get pubic lice or to sort of negate that but they would then have a merkin to make it seem like they had pubic hair because at the time to have nothing was weird yeah i mean it's it's, or i guess they would be worried that maybe she was actually a child so yeah, I mean, there's. I think there's a bit of misinformation about the actual sort of function of the hair. If hair is kind of trapping things or making things unhygienic, I don't think the hair is at fault. I think there are some other, you know, yeah, just, you need demons to, to slay down there. Kind of reminded me a little bit of uh, Signe Bauman's film, one of her teat bead of sexes. Do you remember that one? Yeah, yeah. Which I actually own a cell from. Yeah, she, um, from this particular episode. From hair, yeah. Ah. She made a film about, like, shaving and deciding it's not really for her. But the description of why it wasn't for her I thought was really interesting. And that it wasn't kind of completely without its appeal, but ultimately it was, I think, a sensational issue. Mm. I mean, you know, an issue of sensation, not like, it's sensational! (laughs) 
I found the Strange Beast Venus Pube video on Gillette's YouTube channel. I think you've reflected in the comments. Mm. Who's like, I don't need to see this. So came here. How you didn't <laughs> stumble across this. Uh, a lot of the comments are like, is this shared on TV? They should make a Netflix show out of this. They kind of have. Yeah, somebody else said it was uh, Big Mouth-esque. Well, I love this. LOL, I watch Big Mouth. I'd watch a full series of this little gem. And advertisements work. I'm looking up Venus right now. I need a trim. Good to know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Spicy Possum writes, This was an ad in my seventh grade class today while we were watching Bill Nye. I think our teacher is traumatized. (laughs) Oh, Rowena Haps declares, These companies advertise to us like we're children. There's no hope for humanity. I can chill out, love. (laughs) McCorn O'Donnell Emmerich. Really? 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 What the actual F has society come to? Why? What's wrong? (laughs) What are you so mad about? It didn't really strike me as a particularly divisive video. It's pretty um, innocuous. You know. I do wish there was a slightly better word than pubes. Well, I think that's sort of the point, isn't it? It's the verbiage, isn't it? Yeah. All I ever wished to be was just another hair. But when they got one look at me, the ruling from society was ill, not you. Oh, what's a curl to do? Has a bit of an Avenue Q vibe yeah. with the music. I would say it's, it's more that Avenue sort of like Q than Big Mouth. Yeah. So anyway, another animation entry in the uh, commercial world of intimate advertising. We're not sponsored by Venus. I can't speak for the quality of their product, but if you want to check out that ad, visit strangebeast.tv and uh, check out some more work by Sasha Bealy. And I think that was all the sort of notes I had on stuff that's going on. Oh, the other thing was. Um, this Human Resources show, which we kind of talked about a bit in the last Squiggly Animation podcast, but I think we can probably wait until we actually hear more about the show. Yeah, I definitely need to bring it up again. The only other thing that's happened since the last episode, and the last episode was a little while ago, so this happened a little while ago, it's not really animation, but it's sprung from the wellspring of animation. Were you aware, my dear Laura Beth, that they were remaking the Powerpuff Girls again? For probably the fifth time. I'd seen something leaked of, like, the live-action girls attached to some sort of harness and being sort of flung through the air, but that's all I've seen. And I, I actually wasn't sure if that was a real thing. I thought it was maybe just, like, some... Like a sketch or something. Like, YouTuber being like, what if we made a live-action Powerpuffs? How bad would that be? Well, <laughs> we're about to find out. This was back, I guess, at the beginning of June, end of May. They had been filming a pilot to adapt and update and age up the Powerpuff Girls. And, uh, yeah, a couple of months ago, the pilot script leaked. And I guess that they have been filming this script for a while, if that's what those production photos were from. Based on the kind of public reaction to the leaked script, I think they have to go back to the drawing board. There were some excerpts that were posted up and... As bad as you could imagine, it really is abominable. Like, it's quite stunning. Oh, really? Well, not really in the ways you'd sort of expect. It's sort of the worst crimes I feel it commits are these painful, painful attempts to be hip. 
But the sort of premise seems to be this sort of world-weary, you know, we were once, you know, the young Powerpuff Girls, now we are young adults. Isn't it like the Powerpuff Girls meets, like, the Dark Tales of Sabrina on Netflix and Riverdale? I think it's that's like, probably the vibe. It's, it's like, like these cartoons you know from a child, but edgy. Yeah, it's the Archie comics, but they fuck. Why? And teenagers. and <laughs> What was wrong with just angsty. going to the diner and having a malted? It's like well-loved cartoons meets American Horror Story. Yeah. Which in premise sounds great, but in reality tends to not be so wonderful. Because if anyone should have been a fan of the Sabrina show, it should have been me. As both being a fan of Sabrina growing up and liking everything to do with like popular witch culture and American Horror Story kind of aesthetics and fashion. And I did like the look of it, but narratively I was like, oh, I fucking hate these people. I feel like, because I remember watching a few of them, and I feel like we got to a point where they had, like, the really shitty monsters that were, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer monsters, mm. and there was this kind of self-conscious, like, I think I'm watching something for 15-year-olds. Well, it's it's all visual candy, yeah. and not a lot of anything else. It was very much like, oh, God, we, uh, I feel like this is something we need to discuss on the podcast in general, but the fact that we uh, watched, like... 10 minutes of twilight the other day oh my god i've never watched twilight because i've you know inherently know it's gonna be bad but i wasn't prepared for how bad it was no it was like someone had like made a joke version of it based on how bad people assume Mm. those movies are that's what the actual movie is like oh god i think this powerpuff girls is a similar thing it's it's trying to kind of bring it to the modern age in this very edgy way, or perhaps not even edgy, but just like, I don't know, young adulted up, mm. but with quite explicit references to their sex lives and stuff like that. Now, the Powerpuff Girls, I'm sure, amassed its riches from an audience of preteen girls. That would presumably have been its main audience in terms of who's buying the merchandise, who was tuning in regularly, right? But the show, at its heart, it was just made by this dude who had a pretty decent sense of humor they were very watchable i was about 17 18 i think when i first saw it and it was just a good show to kind of watch if you liked goofy weird cartoons you know under the influence it wasn't aimed toward adults but it was legitimately i think funny enough because it had this kind of self-awareness it had a bit of darkness to it like it was quite gross at times and sometimes it was conceptually a bit dark as well it had a slight edge to it, not enough to scare kids away. like Or worry the parents. Yeah. You know, it's sort of dirty jokes, and there were some in there. They weren't nearly as blatant as stuff you'd get in stuff like Animaniacs, where they would like almost highlight it, or it Cow and the, Chicken, or Ren and Stimpy, or whatever. It was the golden era of Cartoon Network, when parents weren't aware enough to look for things to have problems with. And we were in that weird lull culturally where everything was kind of okay. (laughs) Like, you could make weird jokes and people wouldn't, like, freak the hell out of it about it. Mostly because the internet was around, but it wasn't quite the mega beast it is now. Yeah. Where every single thing is sort of, like, scraped and scratched until it's unfun. Yeah. So who wrote the script for the Powerpuff Girls? So it's by Diablo Cody, and I quite like Diablo Cody as a writer, 
Well, I sort of do. I mean, I don't like Juno, which I think is probably her most successful film or most well-known film. But her other film called Young Adult is like one of my favorite films. And it was actually a big influence on like Throat, the comic I did. And it, it was just a really great idiosyncratic, horrible lead. Did she also do United States of Tara? Yeah. I and, really liked um, that. That was very good. Tully, which was all right. So I, I generally quite like it. What, so what really surprised me was these sort of cringy things in the script, because she doesn't strike me as someone who would embarrass themselves trying to be edgy in their writing. Because mm-hmm. the writing is quite organically edgy, like especially in Young Adult. It's really, I mean, it's played very dry, but it's not like, it was. It doesn't feel like it's trying to be a provocative script. You never know, though. It You never know what goes on like behind like what they've said to her about like what they want included, and maybe this was her attempt at like proving, like, no, this is not what you want. Yeah. You don't want these buzzwords and stuff in it. Because I guarantee this was pitched to people as, it's like Powerpuff Girls meets Riverdale or Sabrina. And, like, look at the, how well they've done. And then a bunch of clueless, non-creative production people come along and go like, we want this to be viral, we want it to be the hit, we want it to be edgy, but not too edgy. Yeah. Not too edgy. We want us to really push the envelope within very specific parameters. <laughs> yeah. Weren't you going to read me the script? Oh, yeah. Sorry, I got distracted. I was sort of looking at, like, um, old Powerpuff Girls. Just any excuse. I'll tell you when you can come. No one tells me when to come. I'm a monster. If that line isn't in the live-action version, then I will assume they've never watched the actual show. Yeah. That line needs to make an appearance in this script. So, yeah, there are some excerpts that various people have kind of... The whole PDF is available somewhere, but I'm not going to go through it. So these are without... I'm not really sure what the context is, but these are... Okay. You could Because we haven't actually seen a live-action version yet, we can really sort of picture them as the characters from the cartoon. Bubbles. Blossom's fine. I saw on her Insta... Not Instagram, Insta. Of course. I saw on her Insta that she has a boyfriend. I saw on her LinkedIn that she got promoted, and I saw on Facebook that she still talks to Grandpa, despite their political differences. Buttercup. Coming back here is probably, quote-unquote, triggering for her. Bubbles. Why? Because she's the one who killed Mojo? I mean, moveon.org. <laughs> so a lot of these are just kind of... It's, it, it's not so much that they're like dirty jokes, they're just so fucking weird joke concepts bubbles look we love being powerpuff girls but sometimes we wanted to be other things too like in dirty dancing baby wanted to join the peace corps but she also wanted to be a fancy slut and her dad didn't get it drake emotional jerry orbach was doing his best to understand who the fuck is drake also well well let's let's get to the nub of the issue who the fuck is Jerry Orbach to someone who's going to be watching a show targeted at teenagers? Is Dirty Dancing remotely on the radar of, like, kids today? I bet they're just fucking I yearning also, for a good Jerry Orbach reference. I also don't think that's the reading of Dirty Dancing. Later on in the same except, uh, the following scene. Blossom heads upstairs, where the bumping sound continues from Buttercup's room, then abruptly stops. Blossom opens the door and finds Buttercup in bed with Macy, 
the woman she eyed at the bar the night before. They've just, quote-unquote, finished. That's, I love that detail of the quotation marks around finished, like, get it? Blossom, oh god, I'm sorry. Buttercup, it's fine. To Macy, we're done, right? Macy, I'd say six times is enough. I'll tell you when to come. <laughs> there, that's where it is. That's, that's where, where that line it. goes. Perfect. No one tells me when to come. So I don't know, is this giving you a kind of um, image of how the pilot was shaping up? I mean, I, I feel like it was never going to be good. So it's at equal <laughs> to what my hopes were. The first kind of reaction to something like this. Okay, well, that's obviously fake. Like, these are just, like, someone has made up a shitty script because it couldn't be that bad. Uh, but but it also, does... it could be, because it could just be a first draft. Well, I think it was the draft they were filming, too. I, I did a bit of digging, by which, I mean, I clicked a link. And after this leaked, basically, the actual production has kind of launched itself toward a course correction operation. And according to Vanity Fair, the Powerpuff Girls' next rescue mission has hit a snag a day after the live-action reboot's edgy script reportedly leaked on Twitter, the CW confirmed that its adaptation of Craig McCracken's popular animated series is being reimagined. The reason we do pilots is, sometimes things miss, CW's chairman and CEO Mark Pedowitz said during the show's upfront press call on Tuesday. We believe in the cast, and in Diablo Cody and Heather Rainier. In this case, the pilot didn't work. Because we see enough elements in there, we want to give it another shot. It may have felt a little too campy and not rooted in reality. So I think, okay, so that's the solution. They're going to make their remake of the Powerpuff Girls more, more rooted real. in reality. More real. Well, more power to them. Uh, I wish the makers of the um, adult sexed up Powerpuff Girls all the luck in the world. Let's get the taste of that out of our mouths and talk about this episode's guest. Why don't we? Okay. Uh, this is someone who we have had on the site before. Uh, we've actually interviewed him, I think, three times for this one film. You interviewed him twice. The first interview was on the site as a written interview. Uh, we haven't used it for a podcast because it was really windy, I believe. Or he oh, was... yeah. He was sort of walking around Edinburgh yeah. whilst uh, recording, and there was a lot of him like talking whilst also trying to cross a road. <laughs> I, I remember it being sort of a tricky one to transcribe. But earlier in the year, we did a squiggly screening with our good pals at Cardiff Animation Nights, and when we included his film, Betty, as part of the program. Uh, this is Will Anderson we're talking about, by the way. Uh, you probably worked that out. I think he finished this about a year and a half ago or two years ago. It's done really well. It was at Encounters last year. Uh, it's played at Pictoplasma and Mephesta's a Greb. Poff Shorts uh, won a BAFTA, a Scottish BAFTA, and it also won the Scottish Short Film Award at the Glasgow Short Film Festival. Uh, yeah, and it's called Betty. We talked about it actually at some length in Episode 6, Season 3. Uh, I believe that was when we had uh, Nadja Andrasev on. If you missed that one, you could go back to that. I think that was because was, that was when it was playing at Encounters. But to recap, uh, it's a film about a uh, lovebird dealing with a relationship that is dissolved. And it's one of my favorite films of the last few years, honestly. I keep returning to it in my head. I think the whole way it's put together is really sublime. It's really funny. It kind of 
plays with your emotions a bit, but in a not manipulative way. In a mean, I mean, it is it's manipulative, but not in a mean way. It's like, ah, oh, you got me, kind of thing. Like there'll be these sort of really it's- genuinely emotional moments, and then as a director, he kind of feels the need to intervene on his own, like ponderings, I guess. It's self-effacing, isn't it, more than manipulated? Yeah. It's, well, it's being very acutely trying not to manipulate you. He's, or rather, he's pointing out the manipulation that he is That's doing. That's true, yeah. So he did this interview with Will for the kind of animation night screening, and we showed a quite small excerpt of it live that night. But I figured as we had a longer segment and, you know, the audio was nice and clear, and more importantly, the film is about to come out to watch in full online, uh, it would be good to have him on this podcast. I will say that in this segment, the conversation is more, I think, on the production and the sensibilities of his artistic and technical process, rather than the actual sort of lovelorn character in the story behind it. But I think in your other interview, which people can check out on squiggly.com, that goes into that side of things as well. So this is kind of like companion listening, I would say, to your earlier feature. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's because it's such a prominent part of Will's process is that he's not only meta in terms of his narrative, but he's often meta in terms of his process, in the sense that he sort of very clearly represents the animation process within it, and he often blurs the line between what we're seeing. So it's sort of like... And he does that in, with a lot of his work. He sort of shows the tools of the trade in an artificial way. He's sort of, he's animating the tools as well as the characters themselves. Yeah, it really sort of shows. Like, he does a lot of social media posts that are kind of ostensibly, like, process posts. But really, they're all kind of like little works of art in themselves. Mm. They're these kind of celebrations of, like, glitch art, almost. Yeah, it's like um, that series he did about, like, tutorials. And it's like, how to animate a horse and it's just sort of showing it falling apart and the way in which um rigging tools can like really break down if you just put everything to minus you know yeah. like hey a beautifully animated horse and it's just like bah, 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 bah. <laughs> it's kind of cubist <laughs> so yeah uh, like i said it's coming out soon let's pass it over to will anderson shall we indeed can we start by telling me a little bit about in your own words what the film is about and where the idea came from Sure. Betty's a film about uh, an animator, which is me, uh, trying to make sense of a failed relationship that I had. So it's quite a personal film. But uh, above the surface, it it's follows this little uh, lovebird called Bobby. Uh, and the butter in his life starts to melt away. And uh, we follow him as he tries to find it again. But it's, yeah, it's a personal thing. It's kind of a bit like a animated documentary in some ways my voice is in it i'm very present in it but uh graphically it's very brightly colored and 2d animation all on white it's very uh it's very me if you've seen my stuff before it's very me on that what was the thinking behind the kind of exaggerated shapes and using of that in the film that's a good question the I think I think I have as much like loads of animators, I guess. I have like a graphic style and it's always been quite simple, silhouette, geometric stuff that I tend to do in my own time anyway. Like other films, like there's there's like a visually it's very similar to the film I made before, which was called Have Heart, and that was 
well, it was about holding yourself together. So all the shapes kind of loosely held together and then they kind of fell apart and you had this character had to, you know, keep it together. So it was, it's a continuation of that style, which I enjoy. I like it because there's something quite beautiful for me in simplicity, particularly with animation, because animation's freaking amazing, obviously. And like you can make, you know, like you look at 3D environment stuff, like, you know, what you watch in the theater, you know, it's you can do incredible, realistic, amazing stuff with animation. And I love all that. But there is something just really lovely about simplicity for me. Like you can strip something back to almost nothing and gain like the same meaning or like, you know, a powerful message. I think that's beautiful. It kind of goes to, down to design, I think. Like Longbird's a bit like that. Like Longbird's a silhouette. Like he's a physical silhouette with some eyes punched out of it. And like, that's it. Cause like he is an actual bit of paper. And that was something that like, when I was a student, I was really excited by. Because like Artur at the time, he was talking about silhouettes of characters like, you know, uh, Mickey Mouse, like three circles, you know, it's Mickey Mouse. So like most people in the world would know that. And that really, I don't know, I find that really inspiring. It's mm -hmm. like, because that you think about it like, oh, that's, that's a little mischievous mouse, you know, and it's just three black circles. That's quite powerful. So that's, that's why I was like, when I was just started to design characters, it was like, it's all about the simplicity, really, and getting as much emotion and character out of simplicity. For me, anyway, that's what excites me. It's uh, a very uh, clean and pure. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah, it's sort, it's sort of, it's not messy. It's just, yeah. It's a funny thing with design because it's never, it feels like it's never done. You know, you look back at your old stuff and you're like, whoa, whoa what was it doing? That's just, that's just there. That just exists. But maybe I'll look back on it slightly less like that if, if I've kept it really simple. I don't know. Yeah. Um, on that, the film sort of plays with both the viewer and the medium of animation to sort of reveal layers of emotion and meaning. What was the thinking behind using that as a narrative device? I think it's un I think it was unavoidable. It's uh, most of the films that I make are. Uh, they're they're personal films, you know. What I mean, they're like personally led sort of things about what are happening to me. So you can't, I can't help but put myself in it. Which, to be honest, I don't love the sound of that. I don't love the, the what I've just said. I'm like, you know, Longbird's very much like that. Betty is very very much like that. Have heart less. But I, I talk about it sometimes as being like, it, if you're going to do something personal, it, only you know how to talk about it really because it's sapping to you so like that that's it's almost like a, a method of like making work if it's like I would struggle to make work uh, to just tell a story I didn't really care about or I didn't I didn't have any attachment to which you know is fine you know that you know you can you can work that way that's that's fine but with these things it's like well they're so they're so personal so you kind of can't help but ask yourself things and yeah, you, uh, I, I, that fell apart a little bit. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but in terms of, I'll go in a little bit about the layers because like, I, I think, I think like the layers of storytelling have, has always been a thing that I've really enjoyed. 
like meta sort of filmmaking. It's cool. The, my favorite film in the world is F for Fake. And that's by Orson Welles. And it's like he weaves himself into this narrative, this film that, that kind of fell apart. And I, I always loved that. Always totally loved that. And I loved that when I was making Longbird. And the thing I regretted about Longbird was because in the story, like our relationship kind of falls apart and everything kind of collapses. But the edit didn't. So like the, the edit kind of, and then looking back on it, I'm like, the edit should have fallen apart. Like the edit, it should have got messier. So like that was like bubbling in the back of my mind for years when I was making other work. And then I feel like I finally managed to sort of maybe do it a little bit with Betty. Like, because the edit just disintegrates and everything grinds to a halt. I like something kind of cool about that. It's something I really love about that. It's like the actual film just falls apart. Mm. It's like, <laughs> sounds like you shouldn't do that. <laughs> you shouldn't do that with films. But I, I do I like that. It excites me. Because it, it's, it's a symbol of like your relationship falling apart. Mm you're everything falling apart. It's like, well, why, why should the film be all really neat and tight and linger just long enough? It's like, no, it shouldn't. It should overstay its welcome and break. It's very provocative of what it's telling as well. Like the visuals match the narrative perfectly. Oh, that's nice. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> how were you able to make the film like how are you able to fit it around other work the film was made over the course of about a year so not very difficult to do that I, I work all the time on lots of things like not that much commercial stuff but we're always doing bits and bobs or we're making films or things for web and things for charities and stuff but um it's funny because like the actual like process of making films for me is quite fast even though I say it's, it's taken a year but like if, it, if I knew exactly what was going to happen I could do it all very very quickly but it, it's with these films it's like they're they're more exploring things and playing around and doing that in my spare time really I'd like to think you know the next one isn't going to be in my spare time and it's funded but there's a there's a there's something nice about making films that aren't funded where there's no pressure you know to I don't know, you, keeping everyone happy that, you know, it's putting the money in. It's, it's, it's kind of like, it's quite nice and liberating to make films without funding as well. We are making a film with funding at the moment, which is cool. Uh, uh, Ainsley's directing, and um, it's called Shackle. But yeah, it's just a different task, really. You know, if you're not responding to anyone, really. And maybe for me, I think, because I think personal films are easier that way. Because, you know, you're only really asking yourself questions. So, so there's that. How have you uh, found the response to the film since it's been out? Because most of the film's life has been in lockdown. Yeah, I, I mean, it really got COVID. <laughs> like, uh, I think just like everyone's locked away and film festivals is, you know, not really the on the top of the list of you know the bad things that are going on really you know i mean it's like we can get rid of them for a while but it did really it, it, it's been a sh it's a shame it's like i would have liked to have gone away and seen it in front of an audience of people 
you can gather so much from that. And when it's all online, it's very difficult to gather. But yeah, it's it's been quiet. Mm. But it's played it's played at you know quite a few festivals and I've been pleased with the festivals that it's been at and it's won a few things it's good, but um it w- I would like to I'd like to see it in a cinema full of people. I think I think with like a lot of my stuff, it looks like it's sort of fit for online, you know, or mm. you know it's quite graphic and you know bright and colourful and all that. But I actually feel like it's they're built for the cinema. Like, you know, you're stuck there and the sound and the music is beautiful in this film and it's like, it's really intense. And I like, it's hard to get that on a laptop, I think. So when you're watching it, put in some good headphones and turn the lights off. <laughs> Have you been able to actually see it in the cinema yourself? Well, when when I finish, like... Well, the last few shorts have finished. We'll test it out in the cinema, which is great. In like, you know, the art house cinema, it's the cameo here. It's shot at the moment, sadly. But I would strongly recommend people doing that if they can. You know, if you if you can talk to your local cinema about, you know, previewing, you know, your film. We do it before the final sound mix. So it's like we're nearly there and then we check it. Um, and it really gives it, you know, you really know what's working and what isn't. Uh, yeah, that's the only time I think. That's the only time I've seen it in the cinema because it really, it really got COVID. So <laughs> it's a shame. But it's recovering. Yeah. Thank you to Will Anderson for talking to Laura there about his film Betty, and I believe that will be released online on the twenty fifth of August. Uh, if you can't wait until then, I think it is available on demand. In the meantime. For super cheap, like less than two quid. But yeah, depending on when you hear this, look up Will Anderson, Betty. Check out the film. It's a, it's a wonderful piece of work. And yeah, I think that's all we got for this episode. Do you have anything coming up to plug? I guess Encounters. My new film's going to be playing Encounters in September. Yes, it is. I'm not sure if um, we're going to do another one of these before then, though. Well, we'll probably do our next episode during Encounters, because Encounters is running the whole of September. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's some stuff in Encounters that I do want to talk about in this podcast, but I thought I'd wait until (laughs) next episode while Encounters is going. Well, I guess in this podcast, I'll tell you that it will be playing in Encounters, and in the next one, I'll tell you how it went. Perfect. What a plan. Uh, So the film is called Crafty Witch. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's quite splendid. I I was privileged to work a little bit on the post-production. As always. Uh, yep, well, that's what I'm here for. It's why I married you. <laughs> so yeah, it's in uh, the category The Body Politic. It's part of this year's Encounters official program, along with Anna Ginsberg's film A Love-Hate Relationship, which is one of the films she talked about when she appeared on One to Ones recently. Some other good stuff in here. Marnik Loyson's new film Brunch, which she also worked on. A little, a little bit. bit. Teeny bit. So yeah, Encounters kicks off in September. I actually have a couple of screenings coming up for Speed. It's been a minute. But early in September, it'll be part of the But B-Movie Underground and Trash Film Festival, the 16th edition, which takes place in Breda in the Netherlands. For you Dutch folk out there who fancy uh, going out and checking out a festival, this is a festival that I have a really sort of fond association with. It's one of the festivals that programmed my first ever film. And it also programmed Sunscapades about three years ago. Never been, but it seems really, really fun. 
speed will be part of the shorts block two mean girls which is kind of funny i don't think the girl in my film is mean i think she's quite reasonable <laughs> it looks like a hybrid festival there is a physical screening taking place at 7 30 p.m at the new vesta art center uh, unfortunately for the online program you have to be in the netherlands to watch it but uh, if you happen to be, check it out at butff.nl. And then later in the month, Speed will be playing at the 10th anniversary edition of Fifi Grotte in Toulouse, France. Ooh la la. It'll be part of the screening Au Bon Moment as part of their Barbar's Cine Bistro et Concert program. And that's 24th of September, 8.30pm at Oboem. And you can find out more about that festival at fifigrot.com. Not sure if it's pronounced fifigrot, but that's how it's spelled. That's pretty much all my news, I think. Laura, thanks very much for joining me for another episode of Intimate Animation. You're very welcome. All being well, we'll be back with the next episode of this in September. So until then, happy intimate animating. Goodbye. Goodbye.